so good to be in God's house tonight. Always is good to be here on a Sunday night. Let me move that down a little bit. Um, and it's, you know, I was thinking about as I was, I was prepping this, it's, it truly is an honor uh, and, and it's a privilege to, to preach the word of God. It's, it's kind of a humbling experience, um, especially when you're not necessarily a fan of getting up and, and uh, in front of people and, and all of that. But uh, I, it definitely is an honor to, to preach. It's a, a privilege to preach. I, uh, and, I, you know, I'll take a couple seconds, but I, I, I love this church. I love our pastor. Um, uh, I've learned so much just being under him, and I do love the opportunity that, that provides when, when he goes away. You know, I'm, uh, like I said, humbled to be up here. I uh, also privileged to, to serve along such an amazing church family. I, I couldn't have asked or picked a better family. So uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to start in Romans chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, and then we'll kind of go through this, this whole chapter tonight. So uh, buckle up. Um, but uh, let's start in Romans ch- uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, through inspiration, I beseech you therefore, brethren. I'm going to stop right there. In this chapter, Paul is talking to a specific group of people. Paul's addressing just one group in this chapter, brethren. But he's not just talking to the fellow believers. The word beseech here is is a really strong word. It literally means to invoke or implore. So Paul's begging, Paul's pleading, Paul's imploring fellow believers to listen. The entirety of this chapter right here, chapter 12, Paul is pleading with Christians to do things. So if if you look at the book of Romans up to this point, chapters 1 through chapter 11 and chapters 1 through 11 have largely been foundational, kind of the bedrock of Christian living, if you will. Chapter 12, Paul kind of shifts, he transitions, he moves from laying the doctrinal foundation to now applicational instruction. He moves from, this is what you believe in chapters 1 through 11, to this is how you do it in chapter 12 through the end of the book. Now, that's not, you know, obviously there's still going to be some foundations laid and stuff throughout, but largely that's how Romans is laid out. He's largely no longer dealing with, here's what you believe, but now he's dealing with, here's how you behave because of what you believe. He's saying... Throughout this, this chapter and in, in this book, you know, your doctrine ought to influence your behavior. What you believe ought to affect how you live. Your truth ought to lead to your principle and what you put into practice in your life. So, you know, I kind of feel God led me to this chapter tonight in Romans. Here's an entire chapter in the Bible written just in case. Just in case you want to be a good Christian... Here's a chapter for you, just in case. Let's pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day, Lord, this time in your house, Lord. Thank you for um, this chapter you've given us to uh, instruct us on how to be a good Christian, how to live fully for you, and how to 
uh, apply that to our lives and, and those around us, Lord. Just uh, hide me behind your cross tonight, Lord. Give me the words to say. Give me a clear thought, clear mind, Lord, and just uh, uh, get across the thoughts that you've given me, Lord. Um, Lord, just uh, give us a good time in your word tonight, in your name. Amen. Um, you know, I, I heard a, a story. A locksmith had to go to court to give evidence last week. Um, apparently, he was the key witness. Uh, in seriousness, though, though <laughs> in, in doing my preparation, I, I, read, I came across an interesting question. If you were put on trial tonight for being a Christian... Is there enough evidence in the world to convict you? If a key witness, if that locksmith was brought against you, would there be enough evidence presented to convict you guilty of being a Christian? Um, as I thought through that, I guess the, the first kind of step I had to take and to answer that question is we got to understand what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian literally means little Christ. Webster defines a Christian as a real disciple of Christ, one who believes the truth, studies to follow the example, and obeys the precepts of Christ. You know, the sense behind the word Christian is that, that Christianity is a, a life that should serve as a mirror image and a, a reflection of Christ. Um, you know, the Bible tells us a Christian ought to be many things. A Christian ought to be a representative. A Christian ought to be an ambassador. A Christian ought to be a soldier. A Christian ought to be a servant. Being a Christian isn't simply being a believer, someone that believes in Christ, but it's also being a follower of Christ. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, um, we're not going to turn there, but we see the disciples in Antioch, Antioch called Christian for the very first time in this world. They weren't called Christians, though, simply because of what they believed. They were called Christians because of how they behaved. As they lived in the city of Antioch, as they went about their daily lives, it was obvious, as Brother Deals preached last week, that they were a peculiar people. They were different. They were distinct. They were distinguished. And the world then disparaged them and said that these people are just like that Christ that we crucified. They must be Christians. They weren't called Christians solely because of what they believed. They were called Christians because of, uh, again, how they behaved. These disciples in Antioch understood that being a Christian meant more than a fish sticker on the back of their car, a t-shirt, a bracelet that they wore. It meant more than saying, this is what I believe, but it was also showing this is how I do. You know, being a Christian is more than just being a sponge that sits there and soaks up the truth, but being that sponge that soaks up the truth and then squeezes it out into the world around you. You know, when someone says, I'm a Christian, it ought not just be about the internal, but it also be, ought be about the external. It not just be about, ought not just be about doctrine that we know, but it also be about the duty. It ought not just be about the truth, but also about application. It ought not just be about a creed that we live by, but also about character, about conduct. You know, Christianity isn't just truth accepted, but it's also truth applied. So, let me ask again. Can the world, or let me ask it this way: Can the world see Jesus? Can the world see Jesus through us? You know, if we were put on trial tonight for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Um, go ahead and turn with me to James, 
chapter number two. James chapter two. Um, verse 14, James chapter two says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give him the, uh, not those things which are needful to the body. Even so, uh, uh, needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here in, in James, uh, and similarly to Paul, James is teaching about your Christian life. Faith brings salvation. Salvation should bring works. You see, the world, the world can't see our faith. They can't see what's on the inside. But the world can see the fruits of our faith and the fruits that our faith brings. They can't see the faith that lives within, but they can certainly see how my faith lives in the world without. Um, in, in 2 Timothy uh, 3, Paul writes, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, and then he follows it right up with manner of life. You know, Paul understood, much like James did here, Paul understood that you can't separate the two. You can't separate faith from works. If you believe it, it ought to permeate the entirety of your life. It should affect the way you walk. It should affect the way you talk. It should affect the way you think. So tonight, I want to... Go back to Romans 12, take a look at this chapter for a little while, and just see how to help it us just in case we want to be a good Christian. Um, so like I said, Romans, Romans is a foundational book. It's a book of doctrine. Much of the foundation for, the, for New Testament Christianity, uh, Paul laid out through inspiration in this book, it, largely through the first 11 chapters. In, in chapter 1, we learn about the sin of the Gentile. In chapter 2, we learn about the sin of the Jew. In chapter 3, Paul has the audacity to write, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As the book continues, we learn of justification. We learn of atonement. We learn of salvation. We learn of adoption. We learn of the Holy Spirit. We learn of eternal security. But then comes chapter 12, we see a transition. Paul's no longer laying out doctrine, the what we believe, but rather he's laying out the application. This is how we behave. The truth was presented... And now the truth needs to be put into practice. So in this chapter, chapter 12, we're given instruction. We're given imperatives on how to grow our Christian life. And in turn, we strengthen our family. We can strengthen our relationship with others. We strengthen our church. And we strengthen our, most importantly, relationship with God. So the chapter, I think, really can be split out in kind of four divisions. Um, first section, first division is chapter, or, uh, verses 1 and 2. And it really looks at the internal our relationship with God, or how I labeled it, the Christian and his consecration. Verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and uh, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's pause right there. Um, whenever we see a therefore in Scripture, I know we know this, we got to go back and see what it's there for. So if we look back through the book of Romans, Paul's building the case that all have sinned. Nobody's worthy of salvation, not one. Legal sacrifices are no longer a placeholder, a picture of the blood that was shed uh, or that was required for the payment of sin um, because now God has sent his one and only son to pay that debt on our behalf. Paul's written through inspiration that this payment 
for our sins is of no cost to us. It's a free gift. And because God is a merciful God and he's not willing that any should perish, and because of those mercies, it's only reasonable that we do something, which then brings us to verse one. You know, you've probably uh, heard the saying, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. As a sinful human, that's certainly true. Um, being a living sacrifice means it's a constant thing. It's a continual thing. You know, being a living sacrifice isn't a one-time sacrifice, but something we keep doing. The tense for the word present here is not a one-time action. It doesn't give that, um, you know, I, I present you with this gift. It's the thought is, or, you know, so it's not like the one-time action, a one-time surrender, one-time offering that we lay on the altar, but rather the thought is every day we wake up, every moment throughout that day, we ought to yield ourselves to God. You know, in the Old Testament, the animals that were designated for sacrifice were set apart. They were separated from birth, so there's no spot, no blemish, no stain, no broken bone, no uh, nothing that would would tarnish that that sacrifice you know much in the same way we've been washed we who have been washed in the blood of the lamb are now set apart or we're to set ourselves apart when we became a christian we didn't bring anything to the table without us god is still god but without god we're nothing Um, god isn't getting something when he gets us i certainly didn't bring a lot to the table But certainly we got everything when we got God. So every single hour of every single day, God is asking us as a Christian to present ourselves to him, uh, present ourselves to him for him to use. And it's only reasonable, as Paul indicates in this verse, that we do that. Since Jesus died for us, the least we can do is live for him. And and it's a thing, it's, it's not a, compulsory thing. It's not of compulsion that we do that, that we have to do this, but it's rather we present ourselves. It, it makes it a free will choice that we do it. Verse two continues, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we present ourselves as a, a sacrifice to God. And then Paul goes right on and he says, be not conformed to this world. And this is really how we present ourselves as a, as a sacrifice to God. Be not conformed. Conform uh, here means to pattern yourself. You know, we talked about this a week and a half ago or whatever it is was on Wednesday night. You know, so our, our talk, our walk, our thoughts, we shouldn't pattern those after the, the world's speech, after the world's actions, after the world's thinking, but rather we need to transform them to God's speech. God's actions, God's thinking. You know, we have to see everything in life the way God sees everything. You know, so we ought not form ourselves after this world. We ought not fashion ourselves after this world. We ought not fit ourselves into this world, the mold of this world. But what does Paul say? But be ye transformed. So the word here, I like looking up words. Uh, the word here is metamorpho or metamorphosis. You know, in the same way, a little ugly brown caterpillar completely transforms into this giant, beautiful, colorful butterfly. We're to transform our life to be like our savior. So that was uh, 
the Christian in his consecration. Now Paul kind of shifts to um, the Christian and his church. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So Paul, you know, looked at the inside, says, this is what you've got to do to present yourself to God. Present yourself a living sacrifice. Don't conform yourself to this world. At the same time, you ought not think highly of yourself. Um, so Paul's starting with a, really a warning to, to the Christian here, right? So Paul starts this section really warning these believers at, at the church in Rome to not think highly himself that he ought. You know, one writer wrote it this way, a believer, a Christian, should not act proudly, should not arrogate himself with what doesn't belong to him, should not detract from others who may have equal, if not superior abilities, should not glory in what, what he has. Um, but rather, the, the, the verse says we ought to think soberly. So the word soberly literally means um, of a sound mind or sane. So Paul's saying we can't think too highly of ourselves as a Christian, but we have, uh, rather we ought to think of our uh, think be of a sound mind. We ought to be sane. You know, so think of it this way. Consider this. The gifts, the abilities, the knowledge, the faith that we're given, as this verse says, it's not of ourselves, but it's measured out. It's dealt out. It's divided and parted to every man specifically by God himself. Nothing we have is of ourselves. God's given every man, every woman, every child, the gifts, the abilities, the knowledge, in the faith that we have. Paul goes on in verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members of one another, uh, one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do so with do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul's talking about the, the Christian and how he interacts with other members of the church. You know, Paul used a similar uh, illustration in 1 Corinthians. It seems that, that the church at Rome and the church at Corinth had maybe a similar issue in that, that these churches had people, had, had members of the church that had gifts given to them, whether it's a, a prophesying or um, ministry or whatever it was. They had these gifts given to them because we hadn't, we didn't, the scriptures wasn't fulfilled, weren't fulfilled yet. So they had these gifts given them by the great, uh, by the grace of God. But those gifts then kind of swelled into pride. They they got they started thinking highly of themselves. And, and it swelled into pride. So Paul's telling the members at this church in Rome, hey, I know some of you have been given gifts. Others have been given other gifts. But just like a body's made up of members, each of those members has a role. So it is with you in the church. You know, if you think of it this way, the body has hands. The body has feet. The hands don't do what the feet do, and the feet certainly don't do what the hands do. The body's got eyes. The body's got ears. Um, the eyes don't hear and the ears don't see. Um, every member of the body is different, but it all goes together and it all works as one. Same thing goes for the church. Every single person has been placed here in this church for a reason. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote that God had set the members of the body as it pleased him. So it pleased God to put you at Spring Meadow Baptist Church, to put me at Spring Meadow Baptist Church. You know, just like each of the members of the body has a different, a different purpose, um, each of us has a purpose in this church. And that purpose, as, as Paul wrote in Romans, has been given to us by the grace of God. So remember, if we're not serving, if we're not faithful, if we're not doing what God has placed us here for and has given us the talent and the ability to do so, not only are we missing out on opportunities to serve the king of kings, but the entire church suffers. It's just like the body missing an eye or an ear or a hand or a foot. It's just not whole. So in verses 1 and 2, we saw a Christian in his consecration. In 3 through 8, we saw a Christian in his church. Next, we'll shift and we'll see a Christian and his relationship with other Christians, the Christian and other Christians. Um, and we'll start in verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that's, uh, that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in, the spirit, in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distri distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. <laughs> You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think Paul would have to write this, this section of, of the letter to the church in Rome. You, know, you would think Christians would be able to treat other Christians properly and right. Sadly, though, sometimes, you know, I think that we, as, as humans, treat others, uh, I'll say outside the church, that we don't see as regularly maybe a little bit better than those we treat next to us. You know, I, I think growing up, think back to how I treated my sisters, you know, and, 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 um, cause you spend all that time with them and, you know, you treat other people better than I treated my sisters. So I, you know, um, I, I, but what Paul's saying, teaching about here is, is how, what we can do to be a good Christian with other Christians around us. So first Paul says, let love be without dissimulation. Um, dissimulation uh, isn't a word that we use a lot today. But we do use a word that it means. Hypocrisy. So, so Paul kind of starts with a haymaker here, and, and he tells this church, he says, you're treating other Christians, you're loving other Christians hypocritically. You know, we shouldn't tell somebody we love them to their face, but then talk about them behind their back. But the verse kind of goes a step further. It also means we shouldn't love somebody just because they have a high position or they're important in human eyes. You know, we, we have to love our fellow Christians for, for real. Um, Paul goes on in this verse, abhor that which is evil. Again, abhor is probably not a verse we use a lot of nowadays, but it's a strong word. It means to utterly detest. You know, we ought to utterly detest evil. So the question kind of came up, what's evil? Proverbs 6, 17 through 19 
says, or 16 through 19, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to, unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that devises, deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. A proud look, pride is evil. A lying tongue, lying is evil. Hands that shed innocent blood, obviously murder is evil. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, you know, one that kind of thinks of, of evil things is evil. Feet that run swiftly to mischief, you know, one that's kind of quick to commit sin is evil. A false witness speaking lies, going back to our, you know, if you're, if you're put on trial, but it, bearing false witness is evil. And he that soweth discord among brethren, gossip is evil. You know, all of these things we ought to hate. We ought to hate sin. Utterly detest it, as Romans says. <clears throat> Paul goes on in the, ver uh, in the next verse. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. You know, this one kind of stood out to me. And, and we ought to prefer the company of one another in this building, of fellow believers, of Christians, um, those of like faith than we have with those that have no hope. You know, being with fellow believers ought to bring us joy. Paul goes on, not slothful in business, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. So, you know, Paul starts off, hey, we got to be a diligent worker in the world. But where I want to focus is on the second half of this verse. Fervent in spirit. So the word fervent means to be hot, to boil over. You know, it gives the idea that we shouldn't slack, the first part of the verse, we shouldn't slack when it comes to our job in society but we should also be boiling over when it comes to our service of the Lord. You know, God shouldn't get our seconds, our thirds, our fourths, but God should get our best. We shouldn't need a pep rally. We shouldn't need an amen. We shouldn't need an attaboy to serve Jesus. You know, the truth is, we're not always going to want to feel like it. We're not always going to feel like serving. We're not always going to want to, but we need to. You know, we need to be stirred up about winning the lost. We need to be stirred up about teaching the young people in this church. We need to be stirred up about lifting others up in prayer. We need to be served, uh, stirred about serving Jesus. We got far more than we deserved when we got saved. And that's reason enough to be stirred up. As Paul goes on, rejoicing in hope. You know, that means we ought to look forward to that blessed return in, uh, of our Savior. Patient in tribulation. Tribulation's going to come. You know, there's, there's no way around that. When, we, when it does, though, what this verse is saying is we don't pout. We don't put on a pity party. We rise up and we rely on God to get us through. Um, and next, really, is how we do that. We Continuing instant in prayer. You know, prayer is always needed. But how much more is prayer needed in a time of tribulation or trial? You know, instant here, it, it means to be earnest towards. So prayer isn't just, hey, I'm in this trial, help me. It's an earnest plea to the omnipotent God to help us through that tribulation. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. You know, this kind of means a little bit more after watching the, the, the present, or, uh, Brother Brosnan this morning. But uh, when I wrote it in, I, I, I love this church. You know, when there's a need in this church, and this is, this is something we are, we are, I will say, very strong in. Uh, when there's a need in this church, there's not a shortage of those ready to step up, ready to help. 
Um, whether it's making a meal, making a phone call, making a trip to the store, people in this church will do that. When there's a need, it's usually met. Um, we saw it today with uh, Brother Brosnan and, and, and the folks in Ukraine. Needs are met. Uh, verse thir- uh, 14, Paul goes on, Bless them with per- which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this one later on, but uh, really, we don't retaliate, especially with another believer. If someone does us wrong, we don't do wrong back to them. Paul continues, Rejoice with them that do rejoice. You know, if someone gets blessed by God, we ought not get jealous. God knows what we need. God knows what we want. And he's faithful to meet those needs. And he's faithful to meet our wants too. And then that verse says, and weep with them that weep. And, and this part of the, the verse really, really hit home. You know, after obviously going through what we've gone through, I'm thankful that we had our brothers and sisters in this, in this church and, and brothers and sisters in Christ during our season of weeping. You may not have had your season of weeping, but it will come. And you will be thankful that you have your church family when it does come. Verse 16 says, be of the same mind toward, uh, one toward another, but condescend. Again, Paul's saying, it, kind of reiterating the fact that don't think highly of yourself than you ought to think. You know, we're all just sinners saved by grace. And if we weren't sinners saved by grace, who knows where we'd be. So first part of the chapter, we saw a Christian in his consecration. Then we saw a Christian in his church. Then we saw a Christian and other Christians. And the last part of the chapter, we'll, and then we'll close and, and we'll see the Christian and his community. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So the next five chapters really address how a Christian ought to conduct himself in regards to the world around him. That doesn't exclude the church, but it includes everyone else, the world those that are outside these church walls that we come in contact with our daily, uh, in our day-to-day lives. You know? So it's not that these verses don't apply within the church, but primarily it's our conduct outside that others see. You know, the bulk of the Christian life isn't lived with the, within the friendly confines of these church walls. Most of our Christian life is lived outside the house of God. You know, and I, I, I would go a step further and, and I would say how we live our Christian life is far more important to the world outside than it is to the world inside. You know, it's, it's sad. There's far too many Christians that are a good Christian on Sunday morning, but a poor Christian the rest of the week. That hypocritical example really does much to damage the cause of Christ. So in these five verses... Paul gives instructions on how we're to live and act to the, toward those specifically they're not, that are not in the family of God. In these five verses, we find how to express the love of Christ outside this church. Verse 17 really kind of starts off the bat with a constant struggle of our sinful nature and what's natural in this world, if you will. Recompense to no man evil for evil. When you're hurt, we hurt back. When you're done wrong, 
humanly, we do wrong back. When you're lied to, humanly, we lie back. When you're mistreated, humanly, we want to mistreat back. But the biblical command is opposite. Recompense, recompense means to repay. Repay no man evil for evil. So when someone does us wrong, we have no cause to repay that wrong. The worldly philosophy is to do unto others how they have done unto us. But that's not biblical philosophy. The Bible tells us to turn the other cheek. The Bible tells us do unto others how you would have them do unto you. You know, I can't, you can't help, but with this verse, you can't help but think about Calvary when you read this verse. You know, how did Christ respond when he was beaten, when he was bloodied? He didn't respond by yelling back. He didn't respond by hitting them or retaliating. He didn't even open their, his mouth, but rather he went as far to ask his father to forgive them. Verse 17 continues, live honest in the sight of all men. You know, we cannot, as a Christian, be a hypocrite in our life. Our words ought to mean something. Our actions ought to mean something. And both of those should back each other up. What we say should be what we do. What we do should follow what we say. But more than honorable and honest, every word we say, every action we do ought to bring glory to God. It ought to bring light to this dark world. Paul continues in uh, verse 18. If it be possible, as much as lieth, with, uh, lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. What this means is as far as we can, we need to live at peace with all men. God knew this is something that, again, a human would struggle with. Everyone's got a breaking point. But what this verse is saying is we're to go as far as possible to maintain peace. You know, we ought not go to fists right out the gate. We ought not lose our temper. We ought not blow a fuse in frustration. We ought not stir the pot. But rather, as much as possible, we're to seek peace. As much as possible, we're to maintain control. We're to be temperate in all things. So the charge here is, whenever, wherever possible, we're to have peace, we're to promote peace, and we're to be at peace with those around us. Paul goes on. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Verse 19 is yet another verse that's kind of contrary to worldly thinking. I think this whole back half of this chapter is. It's not our place to seek revenge. The world seeks revenge, but we aren't to seek revenge. If we're even to attempt to bring justice... We'd fail because we don't know what true justice is. Only God knows justice. But there's an encouragement in that. That whenever we're wronged, whenever we're mistreated, whenever we're lied about, whenever we're hurt, God sees all of it. Our role is to lay it on him, and in his time, he will take care of it. As a Christian, we don't rush out and we seek revenge. We don't rush out and repay the wrong. But what we should do is pray for that wrongdoer, which goes right into verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. So rather than responding in kind, here's how we respond. We do good to those who do bad to us. We're to bless those that said earlier, bless those that persecute us. We're to pray for those that despitefully use us. We're to love our enemies. And finally, verse 21. 
be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, it almost seems like these five verses really kind of are tied up with a bow or they're all summed up in this one verse right here. We cannot allow sin to get the best of us. We cannot allow anger to get the best of us. We cannot allow our temper to get the best of us. We don't overcome evil with evil. But evil can only be overcome by good. You know, we don't retaliate, but we are to respond like our Lord and Savior to those outside the church. Our Christianity, I said it earlier, is far more important outside the church than in. You know, the world doesn't read a Bible. The world reads us. The world reads a Christian. So what the world needs to know or what the world knows about our Christ is what they see in how we live our life. We need to live like the lost world. To, uh, we need to live like the lost world's souls depend on it. I mean, because they do. So as we close, I'll, I, I, as I, I tend to do, I'll leave with some encouragements, you know. So I, I encourage, uh, first, know what you believe. Understand the doctrines that Paul's laid out in Romans and through and, and that God has laid out through the rest of Scripture. Know the doctrines that we hold to. But more importantly than knowing them, live them. Put action behind your belief. I encourage you to remember the sacrifice that was made by Jesus Christ and make yourself a living sacrifice. Every hour, every day, put yourself on that altar and give yourself wholly to God. I encourage you to not be influenced by the world. Don't let your speech, don't let your actions, don't let your thoughts be molded to this world, but rather be transformed to God. You know, I encourage you to use your gifts, the talents that you're given fully for Spring Meadow Baptist Church. God has placed each of us here as an important member of this body for such a time as this. I encourage you to love, lift up, rejoice with, weep with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I encourage you to be boiling over in our service for the king. Get stirred up. And, you know, finally, I encourage you to allow our lives to reflect Christ so that when we come into contact with anybody, an unbeliever, a believer, really an unbeliever, the, the world outside of us, they see the difference that Christ makes in our life. Be the book that a non-Christian reads. Let's pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this chapter in Romans. Thank you for giving us a chapter just in case we want to be a good Christian, Lord, just in case we want to grow, just in case we want to show your love to the world around us, Lord. Just... Uh, Lord, I pray that you use this, uh, the, the, the words tonight, the, the scriptures that, that were shared, and just, um, Lord, just uh, use this in our lives. Help us to grow. Help us to be a, a better Christian, a, a better soldier, a better ambassador for you, Lord. Uh, Lord, give us safety as we travel, as we leave tonight, Lord, and just uh, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today, Lord. In your name, amen. You are dismissed early. <laughs>